Welcome to episode six of Napava Coffee House, hosted by Lawrence Tu. Our host Larry is an experienced C-suite executive whose former roles include serving as the chief legal officer or general counsel for CBS Corporation, Dell, and NBC Universal. My name is Genevieve Antono. I'm in the Harvard Law School class of 2022, and I am producing Napava Coffee House as part of my student fellowship project with the Harvard Law School Center on the Legal Profession. I'm really excited to introduce you to today's guest, Sam Kichi, who is the general counsel for Becton Dickinson and Company, which is a global medical technology company. Sam is actually our first coffee house guest who served in the military before becoming a lawyer. He was a field artillery officer with the U.S. Army after undergrad at Georgetown. He was on active duty、uh, with the New Jersey Army National Guard throughout law school, and he also served as a reserve officer for the U.S. Navy Reserves for a number of years after he started practicing law. One theme that emerges from this interview is how Sam's military experience has made him a better leader in the corporate and legal worlds. So there's one bucket of ideas around leading yourself. So things like raising your self-awareness and taking personal accountability. Uh, practicing daily discipline and getting one percent better every single day, and then there's another bucket of ideas around leading your people. So things like getting to know the people on your team and showing them that you care,、um, leading your men and your women through tough situations、uh, towards a shared objective, and then there's also a third bucket of ideas around working for a higher purpose. And in Sam's case, that could be things like you know having a sense of responsibility towards his family, or wanting to give back to the country, or right now in his current job, you know working in the healthcare industry. I find these ideas and this mindset to be very appealing. I don't think that we,、um, you know, law students and young lawyers will accidentally learn leadership through osmosis、uh, at law school or at law firms. I think that leadership skills are something that you will need to hone with intention. So I think that there's a lot that we can learn from other disciplines, such as the military, and I think that we can all learn so so much from this interview with Sam Kichi. All right, so those were some of my takeaways, and as always, we want to hear what some of your takeaways were. So let us know what you learned, what you loved, in a comment below. We would really love to read your comments. All right, without further ado, here is Larry and Sam. Thank you, Sam, for being a guest on the Napava Coffee House series.、Uh, your life story is an amazing tale of adaptation and success. Having come from India at the age of five without a word of English to a dual career in the military first, then in law and business, I'm really looking forward to hearing and learning much more about all of that. But first and foremost, a big thank you to you for joining us. Thank you for having me, and I, I consider myself very lucky and blessed, and I appreciate the opportunity to.、Uh, Uh, to talk, tell my story. That's great. So, listen. Let's start with your personal history. I, I touched on this a little bit already in the intro, but tell us about your family history. Why you came to the、sure. U.S.? What your families, what your parents' aspirations were, what they did、sure. back there, what they did in the U.S. Sure. So, you know, much like many、uh, immigrant groups that have come to the United States, my parents came here. My father came first in in、uh, 1971. And、uh, brought the rest of us over a year later, and it was primarily to、uh, for better economic opportunities. He was trained as a、uh, mechanical engineer in India, but there was not a lot of work.、Uh, and I think he sought or saw that the United States represented a an opportunity for a better life for his family, and、uh, came over on his own, left with four dollars, and then a year. He promised us he'd call for us in a year, and roughly a year and change later, we arrived in the United States. Now, my, my recollection is that your first week in the U.S. was also your first week of school, or something yeah, like that, right? Yeah, it's, it's actually so. I, you know, when you're young, you don't you, you remember really snippets of your early childhood. Maybe that's a good thing.、Uh, some some of these images are seared in my memory. I remember being、uh, on the plane uh, landing uh, in JFK, and the first time that I was in an,、uh, really an automobile、uh, was when my father picked us up. Drove us to the house. First time we had, we were in a house with、uh, with running water、uh, and a bathroom, and then within just a few days, I can't recall if it was one or two days, but we were in school, and、uh, because my parents were working day and night shifts, 
And uh, they dropped us off uh, at school. It was a, a public uh, elementary school in Hillside, New Jersey, just outside of Newark. And we were really left to fend for ourselves. And I remember I spoke two words of English. It is the most vivid image I have in my head uh, when I was five years old, surrounded by a sea of kids, surrounded by these gigantic adults, because when you're five, you're always looking up and them talking to me in gibberish, which is was in English. And uh, the only two words I had were yes and no. Unbelievable. And then uh, that, that was the beginning of your, uh, that was the your, beginning your life of my, in the U.S. That was the beginning of my academic journey, yes. Uh, now, your father, as you said, left behind his mechanical engineering uh, trade. So you did, what did he do in the U.S.? Well, was he your... was, so in, in India, there wasn't really much to leave behind. I said he was edu educated. He had a college degree. Uh, but early, you know, 19, late 1960s, early 70s in India, uh, there wasn't a lot of work. Uh, mm -hmm. So... Uh, and, you know, if you were middle class, then your quality of life was still well below what uh, people's expectations of a middle class would be in uh, in the Western world. So he didn't leave much behind. Uh, he left us behind uh, for a year. And, uh, you know, it took him time to save up enough money to uh, buy a ticket to bring himself over and then had to save up enough money to bring us over. So this was anything for, uh, that we left behind was really nothing compared to what we were running to. Now, in the town that you were you had relocated to when you came to the U.S., mm -hmm. there there weren't many South Asians around, right? Not many. Uh, I think the you know I don't have the demographic data, but uh, the the wave of South Asian immigration really came in the '80s and '90s, and probably more uh, so in the '90s uh, because of the high tech uh, software uh, demands. And uh, but uh, there were, in fact, I don't recall seeing anyone of my uh, background in school. In fact, I believe when we were even, when we moved from that town and got to element, uh, to junior high school and high school, my sister and I were really the only two people of, of uh, South Asian descent in the entire high school. So I imagine there were tough times along the way as a child. It, 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 yes, uh, I would say yes and no. So it was tough because you know, it's very different than where we are today. We're a much more multicultural society, uh, notwithstanding the many challenges that we do have and that uh, the issues that we still need to confront and face and, and resolve uh, acro across uh, many domains. Uh, but back back then, I would say that uh, you, we were very different. And so there was a strong kind of desire to uh, to get along and, and, uh, and be accepted. And uh, many instances, uh, I was, uh, I would hate to admit this, but I was embarrassed by having parents who wore traditional Indian dress because that was completely uh, foreign, uh, you know, odd. Uh, people had not seen that before. Uh, I was, yeah, remember in my second or third grade, we had show and tell and I brought uh, a picture of a Hindu deity. Hmm. And uh, I was uh, laughed at and uh, beaten up on the playground, and and uh, the uh, the deity was stripped from my hand and thrown on the playground, and I was spit on, and that has a lasting impact uh, on you. And I think that and, and uh, you brought this is cool because you were proud of it. It was part of your absolutely right. I mean, this and was so, I, I didn't think anything of it. I said, uh, yeah. you know, it, when you think about it, as an as a someone who's somewhat of an, an outsider, not part of the majority group. Uh, you approach everything with this curiosity and, and so on and acceptance. Uh, but yet I was, you know, certainly not at that age. And in that time uh, was accepted uh, uh, fully, uh, particularly when you're a young kid. I mean, kids can be tough on each other. We all yeah. know that. Uh, but when you're uh, different, uh, like I was, uh, it, 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 you, you stood out and, and, it was it was tough. There were some tough moments for sure, and those moments continued uh, for a period of time. Just they just hmm. manifested themselves in different ways. So, did adapting mean conforming to one degree or another? Yeah, to to a certain extent. Uh, admittedly, yeah. it did. Uh, I think you know part of that's uh, survival, part of that's uh, acceptance, and so. But in some ways, I thought that was good for me. Uh, I was able to you know I adapted through sports. Quite frankly, uh, you told me you switched from soccer to football to I, American I football. I, I did. <laughs> uh, you know in the. Uh, growing up, soccer was, you know, was a sport uh, that was more familiar with, but it seemed like, you know, everyone was playing football and they treated the football players differently. So I, I played football, started playing football in seventh grade and got pretty good at it. Uh, and uh, that was a Sam, way. Sam, what was your position? I'm curious. Uh, I was a linebacker and a defensive back. 
and uh, really, really enjoyed it. So you, you it got a, the you got you got to hit people. Yeah, I, I think it was a way of taking out some of my frustrations because you you know if you chose to take it out more overtly than that outside of the playing field, you were going to get in trouble. So I think it was some ways a way of coping and a way of adapting uh, for me. Yep. Yep. So on to um, college yes. uh, and the ROTC. So tell me about that. Uh, and and what, was there an interest in the military? Was it a way to pay for college? Was it both? It was a combination of both. So I, uh, you know, I, I strong patriotic, uh, I would say ethos inside me, particularly when you come uh, to the United States as an immigrant, uh, you have a sense, or at least certainly I, I did, but feeling to kind of give back. And I thought the military was a way to do that. Uh, it was also a way that would uh, fund my undergraduate degree. Hmm. And so I, uh, I got into Georgetown, but my parents didn't have a way to pay for it. They had uh, roughly one year's worth of tuition. And I would ha- we'd have to figure out a way to cobble uh, together uh, rent money and food money, but we thought we could do that. And so my freshman year, I applied for an ROTC scholarship. It's actually interesting, the story, which uh, you and I actually had not shared previously, but I was playing basketball, pickup basketball at the Georgetown gym. And uh, this, uh, uh, this other gentleman was playing basketball, a tall African-American man, uh, you know, very nice, uh, came over to me and, and we started talking. It turned out he was running the ROTC program at Georgetown. He was a captain, uh, an officer in the military. And uh, he gave me my first opportunity. Uh, he says, look, I, uh, are you interested? And I said, yeah, actually I am interested. And uh, how's the process? And he gave me uh, his card and uh, his office was right on uh, just a block off of the, uh, the main campus. And I went to see him. Uh, it was Captain Taylor. I'll never, I'll never forget him. He may not Captain remember Taylor. me. Captain yeah. uh, Taylor. I'll, I'll never forget him. But uh, I ran into him as I mentioned, playing uh, pickup basketball at the Georgetown uh, indoor courts. And for whatever reason, we struck up a conversation. For whatever reason, he introduced me to the opportunity. And for whatever reason, uh, he encouraged me. And I saw him, and I uh, applied. It was very competitive for a full scholarship, and uh, hmm. I got a full scholarship, uh, Army ROTC at Georgetown. You know, I reflect on that. It's interesting how opportunities present themselves in the most right. unlikely of places. Right. Do, uh, now, did you, how, how did your parents feel about the military? They were, they were very proud. You know, it's, I have a bit of a paradoxical upbringing. My parents, uh, devout Hindus, they're, uh, they're vegetarian. Uh, they don't, they don't drink, they don't gamble. You know, we grew up in a very strict household, but yet they allowed us to make our own choices. So th- I think it's very much an Eastern philosophy of, uh, you know, they wanted me to be a doctor or an engineer. Like that was what they wanted me to be. Uh, but they realized that uh, I would be happier pursuing the things that made me fulfilled. And so once I made those decisions, they were fully supportive. They they were not shy about expressing their opinions. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure as many of us from Eastern background can relate to parents that even after we make choices, sometimes continue to express their opinions. Uh or disappointment or whatever it might be, but uh, they were very supportive. I, I have no doubt if your parents were like my parents, they lobbied you for a while and for a while they wouldn't yes. let up and eventually gave up. Yes. And, and the persistence of their lobbying is quite remarkable. Um, I don't, I don't know what that is, but, uh, <laughs> or why that is, but yes. So, so, t- so talk about your early military career, mm-hmm. uh, because it, it seemed to me that quite early on you began to, um, sort of have responsibility for groups of soldiers. And so, so you're in a leadership role. What is, I think is uh, people who aren't in the military probably have these uh, preconceived notions of what that's like. As an, as an officer, it is one of the greatest leadership training uh, opportunities one can have. Uh, you are thrust into an environment where you have an incredible amount of responsibility Dealing in high stakes decisions, right, life and death decisions, uh, involving the uh, welfare of young men, uh, in, in at least in my combat arms unit, and more broadly speaking, young men and women from all walks of life. And you're responsible for uh, people, property, equipment of significant value uh, in the greatest military in the world. And you're you're 22 years old, so six months earlier, you're you know you're graduating, and you're probably going through senior night, you know, 
drinking beers or whatever it is people do on senior night. And then <laughs> a few months later, you're in training and you're, you know, getting ready to be uh, called into uh, a deployment if necessary. So it was, uh, to me, the most uh, impactful leadership experience uh, that I've had. So you're dealing in ambiguity, you're making fast decisions, and you're basically said, here's the mission and go figure it out. Now you get great training and support, but a lot of it is you're you're uh, having to exercise your leadership skills and ability to influence people. Yeah, learning on the job. Yes. Now the military is also one of the most diverse places in America. Yes. As it, as it turns out. Uh, absolutely, it is. I mean, look, again, uh, like any institution in the United States, there's, there's progress that still continues to be made. Uh, but I would argue that the military uh, has been one of the more diverse places. And, and again, it's not to minimize uh, the continued work that, that needs to occur, uh, that people are focused on. Uh, but my experience, you had people from all walks of life. You had uh, different backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, different geographic backgrounds, different educational backgrounds, and they're all brought together under a common purpose for very little pay, under extreme conditions, and you have to lead these young service men and women uh, into difficult environments, and that to me is a leadership and leadership challenge, and that was one of the most attractive pieces of it. It's it's uh, can you do this well? Can you uh, can you do something that's very difficult? Uh, and can you do it for a higher purpose, right? And so that's why I loved it, because you're not doing it for the pay. So, Sam, you uh, talked earlier about um, some of the challenges of being different when you were growing mm-hmm. up. Did you encounter any of those issues in the military? I, I think that you, anywhere you go, you encounter it if you if you look for it, and uh, and or if you're sensitive to it. So I would tell you that it didn't stop me from achieving what I wanted to achieve in the military, but there were moments where it was a bit frustrating. And I think it's, some of it is, uh, some of it is ignorance uh, in some respects. Uh, other is you know it's you can't control what individuals think and feel about about uh, you or, or where you come from. I would say in the military, it was probably less so uh, than, any, than anything else because the, you know, the, uh, the metrics in which you're judged uh, are a bit more objective and clear, but I did, I, I did experience it, right? I mean, you're, you're, there were not many uh, officers of my background in the military at that time. You know, there's yep. certainly more so now. Yep. So um, you then went on, continued in the military in some capacity, but also began attending night school to go to get your law degree. So tell us about that phase and and, and the commuting to law school from your full-time job. (laughs) Right. So I was working uh, in a a special uh, task force uh, through the New Jersey Army National Guard. So I was on active duty. It was a counter-drug task force that was authorized through the uh, uh, Defense uh, Defense Act of 1992, where they uh, provided federal funds to the different agencies to combat uh, uh, the, the war on drugs. And uh, the National Guard units were uh, uh, placed people on active duty and were assigned to various law enforcement agencies to support counter-drug operations. And it ne- needed to have a counter-drug nexus because of Posse Comitatus, the Civil War about uh, the Civil War law about uh, that prevented the military from enforcing civilian laws, right? So, uh, kind of simplifying a pretty complex set of stuff. Right. So, so I was on active duty uh, supporting uh, various law enforcement agencies, uh, and I was going to law school at night. So I was working out of uh, Twenty Six Federal Plaza downtown in Manhattan, and I was going to law school at Fordham, which is on the Upper uh, West Side, as as some of you know. And I would take the train from downtown, get done with work, 5, 5.30, 6 o'clock, hop on the subway, grab a sandwich, eat dinner, and get to class by 6 or 6.30 whenever it started. And I did that Monday through Thursday. You know, it depends upon the, the class schedule, but roughly it was 6 to 10 p.m., sometimes earlier, sometimes later. Uh, and uh, that was uh, for four years. Yeah, that's and, a pretty uh, tough slog. It, it was. It, was a, it, it, it makes you organize your life uh, pretty Easily. And, you know, I was also doing reserve duty on the weekend. So I, because I was active duty, I also had a reserve <laughs> commitment. Uh, so it prevented me from doing the typical stuff you see in law school, like, you know, trying to you know write onto law review and 
participate in some of those clinical programs, which uh, I, I, I really wish that I had that, uh, uh, the kind of the fun of law school to do that. Uh, but I didn't have a, an option. So for me, it was really focus on the grades, get the best grades that you can, uh, focus on my job, and then position uh, myself for an opportunity in a law firm. Yeah. Now, Sam, had you thought about the military as a long-term career along I, the way? I mean, so and, and rule that out? I, I did. Uh, I, I love that. Even today, I have a, a great uh, job. I love my job, what I do. I love the company I'm with, uh, the teams that we've built. Uh, and I love our purpose. It's uh, in healthcare, advancing the world of health. But even to this day, I would tell you that being an officer of the mil- military was uh, my favorite job. And uh, and the reason for that is uh, just the leadership experience, uh, the value systems, and uh, and working for something bigger than yourself. You really, if you're a, a true uh, leader, an effective leader, you're really working for the people that are in your charge. And so I thought about it, but uh, you know, as as some of you, as some of the audience would appreciate, being the eldest son of an immigrant family from an Eastern background, my responsibility was really to ensure that my family, uh, my uh, my younger brothers, uh, and my parents uh, were going to be taken care of, and uh, I took that responsibility very seriously. And so I made a pivot and said that while I love the military, and I would have uh, continued. Uh, the career, as long as the military would have me and as long as I would have been uh, successful, I made a pivot to go to a field where I could uh, be measured on the value of my work ethic and my intellect, which is the the field of law, uh, which I think is largely true, and where I could have uh, the opportunity to provide for not just the family that I would yet to build, because I was not married then, and the family that I have. It's just you know, a, a sense of response. That's that's where my parents were very successful in actually imprinting that on me, uh, that responsibility uh, early on. So you weren't going to be a doctor or engineer, but you're going to be no. a filial son. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. exactly. I, was, I had to operate as my parents' retirement plan. <laughs> so. Now, your early years after law school uh, in your career were uh, you, you went to a, a few a couple of firms and you did yes. you were doing m a work um, so think I, I would like you to think back to those days and, and tell me what you got out of that experience in other words what, what did you learn from being in a law firm what did you love about it and what did what did you not like about it yeah so i I loved many aspects of being in a law firm first and foremost the the quality of the individuals and the intellectual capital that resides within the you know the four walls of a law firm uh, it's remarkable, and it presents such an amazing opportunity for someone to learn a lot from uh, folks that have been doing it for thirty or forty years, uh, even longer, and uh, have have seen different issues. Uh, and so that I loved the uh, M and A piece for me. Kind of my personality is is a I, I like creating and growing, and so. Uh, while I can be direct and confrontational if necessary, it's not my natural uh, state of being. My natural state mm-hmm. of being is is more uh, M&A oriented, mergers and acquisitions. So I fit into that, uh, I would say, behaviorally better. And what I love so about this, it, so this is notwithstanding your middle linebacker football yes. attack mode training. Well, it's, 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 a, it's a, you know, there are some. It's a team sport, right? The only way you're going to be successful in a team sport is if the team works together and. Uh, you know, the way that I looked at M&A is the, uh, the, the junior M&A lawyer was the quarterback of the deal. And the more senior specialized lawyers actually worked for the M&A team. So it, it, it was one of the interesting observations for me is you would have these uh, highly specialized, you know, whether it's tax or intellectual property or antitrust, terrific uh, senior lawyers. But at the end of the day, the M&A team was coordinating the effort. And uh, to me, that was in some ways, that was the leadership position that I really liked. That was you're being the quarterback of the deal, and uh, and I learned a lot about uh, deal making. Uh, you know, anybody could pick up the, the the basics and the fundamentals of the the legal aspects of M and A. Well, what I really learned about is the the, the human aspects, the business aspects of of getting uh, deals done, and enjoyed it very much. 
So during this period, did you begin to think about uh, a long-term career as a law partner in a law firm? I thought about it. Uh, I think my natural instincts uh, is to be closer to the business. Like I, I think that's where my, uh, you know, going back to my early childhood experience, my, when my father did come over here after a couple of years, uh, he bought a small business. He bought a dry cleaning store. So I grew up working in my parents' dry cleaning store after school and on the weekends. And then he bought a couple of other small businesses. We were a small business family. Uh, we all worked in the stores together. So I know the, you know, the cost of bringing home $100 in the cash register or not, what the rent cost is, what labor cost is, and how every day you got to fight uh, uh, for growth in a small business. And so my natural upbringing is business oriented. So I wanted to be closer to a business, not the business of a law firm, but in the business of, uh, of creating things. And uh, ultimately, I was fortunate enough to actually be in a business that reflected back on my military career was healthcare actually has a higher purpose. Hmm. So what I loved about the military was you're, you're working for something that has a higher purpose. What I love about what I do now in healthcare is that you are working for a company that has a higher purpose. It's not to minimize what, what other companies do. But for me, personally, uh, when you spend a lot of time working, uh, I get motivated by being associated with uh, with a higher purpose. So, so let's so let's talk about your your move from law firm life mm-hmm. in, into your first in house sure. role. Tell us how that happened. You know how that came about and what things yeah. led to it happening. All right. So at at the risk of uh, you know hiding the uh, the identities of the people that uh, that helped me, so I was uh, at a law firm uh, and working on on many simultaneous deals. And some of some folks on in the audience who are still at firms or have been at firms, you know, that in M&A, it can get pretty, uh, pretty tough at times, sleeping underneath your desk or staying overnight many times. And that was, I was going through that. We had a, uh, a, uh, a newborn at the time, I think it was a year, year or two years old. And, uh, it was, it was a tough existence. Uh, I was then seconded to, uh, United Health Group for uh, a period of time working there. Uh, our firm was representing them. I won't get into the details of why I was there. Uh, and while I was out there, I got a call from a recruiter who said, I got your name from uh, an individual. And that individual was a former client of our law firm. And I thought that that client uh, was not someone that particularly liked me very much, <laughs> particularly the way that I was treated on the deal. So, so you might you might have, you might have swallowed hard at that moment. Yeah, <laughs> like, I was, what, what did he say uh, about I, me? I was a bit surprised, quite frankly. And uh, and again, I go back to you never know where opportunities are going to come from. So here I am uh, thinking about, uh, hey, this client, the person that really I didn't think thought highly of me, uh, certainly not the way that I was treated on these deals. Uh, thought highly enough of me to recommend me to a recruiter and say, I think Sam would be perfect for this job. And it, the job was uh, to be the general counsel of a, uh, of a carve out company from Cardinal health that Blackstone uh, had purchased. And uh, you know, I was only nine years out of law school at the time, roughly nine years out of law school. And uh, many of my friends said, no, you're not, there's no way you can do that job. You're only nine years out of law school. Uh, even people very close to me said, don't even try and I went on the interview and uh, I, you know, the head of HR there, uh, again, uh, really valued my leadership experience. Uh, I think they wanted someone that could build a department that could bring uh, good judgment and critical thinking, not just legal expertise to, uh, to the company. And that's how I got my first job as a general counsel, nine years out of law school in 2007. And when you told me the story before, I think you told me that you, you didn't really meet the formal job specs. But it didn't stop you from from pursuing it. No, no. I mean, you know, most most general counsel jobs are not spec'd out at nine years uh, of experience, right? Yeah. Uh, but I think you know where I was able to uh, sell myself was look, I I may have nine years of experience, but I have on paper, but I probably have uh, fifteen to twenty years of professional experience. And if you count the number of hours I was building at Sherman and Sterling and O'Melveny and others, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's probably greater than nine years. <laughs> So you were there for what seven years or so, uh, and then and then and had a great experience. A great experience, loved it. Uh, the CEO there, terrific individual. Uh, he was the, the third CEO that was hired there, and still currently 
uh, the CEO, uh, learned a lot about leadership, innovation, operational excellence, really more about how to be an effective business leader, which made me a be much better general counsel. Uh, and then we uh, we started preparing the company to go public. This for this was in year five or six, and uh, you know waited for the market to open up. And uh, I I left about a month before we got to ring the bell, but did about the two you know year and a half to two years worth of work getting the company ready for an IPO. And uh, only because a great opportunity at a uh, at another medical device company or or another healthcare company that was in medical device came up, and uh, was a challenge. Uh, I would tell you that I, I had a Terrific experience at, at my prior company, uh, built a great team, really uh, had a lot of respect uh, and liked uh, the leadership team and the CEO was terrific. But this other opportunity came along and uh, it represented a bigger opportunity. Uh, and uh, I, I took the job and it was not without risk, uh, but I, I did take the job. And then four years later, uh, we sold that company. I joined when it was about nine and a half, $10 billion market cap. We sold it for $24 billion uh, four years later. Yeah. Now, I think you were telling me that when you when you were approached about that job, there were aspects of the job and the challenges facing the company that you were that was really not in your wheelhouse. And but nonetheless, uh, you got through that process. I'm, I'm so tell us brought, about that. I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's an important you know, I'm hoping that our conversation opens up uh, a way of uh, another way of thinking uh, for, for folks or just another perspective that I offer. So the job uh, I'm an M&A corporate governance person by trade. That's how I grew up. And uh, the company that I was interviewing for was CR Bard. Uh, it no longer exists because it was bought by Beckton Dickinson. It had one of the largest litigation portfolios of any med tech company, uh, tens of thousands of lawsuits and various product lines. Uh, and they were just uh, beginning to grapple with uh, the magnitude of that uh, litigation portfolio. I think it was one or two multi-district litigations that eventually evolved into three multi-district litigations. Tens of thousands of lawsuits. Right. Uh, and, and this is and, not what you had done as a lawyer. I had very little, very little litigation experience at that. Now I would say I have uh, more litigation experience than litigators, but that was, you know, right. that was seven, seven years, seven, eight years ago. So when I was interviewing uh, the CEO, another great CEO, and I will tell you, I've had some amazing experiences with terrific bosses. So while I cattle uh, the privilege of working for, for a phenomenal leader there, at uh, CR Bard, uh, again, the honor of working for uh, two terrific leaders, uh, their CEO and COO. But in the interview, you know, the question came up, well, you don't have a lot of litigation experience. So the way that I answered that question is, uh, that's true, I don't, but I think I can be more effective because I'm going to approach this litigation as a, as a business, from a business perspective. I'm gonna look at the incentives of why this litigation was created, created I'm going to look at how do we manage our cash flows. I'm going to look at how do we have an effective strategy that brings, brings us to uh, a conclusion over time. I'm, you know, a lot of this is game theory when you think about the players that are in multi-district litigation with tens and thousands of lawsuits, and uh, we won't get into that. That's a whole separate book we can write on that. And uh, I presented uh, my skills as someone who could uh, have effective executive judgment. What I said is if you're looking for someone who's in the weeds and knows the details of different motions and, and this and that, I said, I'm not your guy. But if you're looking for somebody that can bring it all together and have a strategy and a series of decisions that accomplish or get close to accomplish our business objectives, I'm very good at that. And uh, you know, it, it proved itself to be true, but I, I will say this, I didn't do it alone. Uh, I hired uh, a terrific litigator out of uh, Pepper Hamilton who had been practicing for 35 years. And I said, look, I don't know a lot about litigation. You're going to be the guy that runs litigation. But together, we're going to develop a strategy, a business legal strategy that will uh, resolve these as effectively as we can. And so uh, that was the way that I was able to uh, convince uh, the, the chairman and CEO that I could be uh, an effective effective at this job, uh, notwithstanding I didn't have any litigation experience. And it proved itself to be uh, true. Well, Sam, listen, I think what you say makes a lot of sense, but it's also quite clear to me that you're also a very effective salesperson, <laughs> uh, that, uh, that you, are, you, you are a good advocate for yourself, which is another important thing that people should bear in mind 
as they think about career options in front of them, you know, how, how to position themselves? I think being honest with what you know, I think one of the first things I, I try to coach my team on is it's okay if you say you don't know, right? It's okay. Uh, and I reinforce that uh, in many ways. I also say it's okay to be wrong because at, at the end of the day, the decision, if you make the best decision for the company, that's, that's what's important. And so if you apply that to yourself, the, the best way to advocate for yourself is to be honest and, and, and have this high degree of self-awareness that says, what are the strengths that you bring? I didn't have litigation experience, but I, I really truly believe that I could make, I could learn it. I could learn what I needed to know and I could deploy effective decision-making on it. A company may or may not need that or value that. And if they don't right. need that, you don't want to be there. Right. right. And so, you know, for me, this is one of the reasons why I'm very happy where I am is I don't have a traditional general counsel role. And uh, for me, I have, I have not just the legal portfolio, which is, you know, a couple hundred, 200, 250 uh, professionals. I have the global regulatory portfolio, I have the global public policy portfolio, and then I have corporate development. For me is I get to act like an executive who has a law degree, not just a lawyer. And uh, so, you need to be honest with what makes you happy and what makes you effective. Like some people are very comfortable just staying in their lane in the legal world and they're very good technically and they can opine and say, you can make this decision and here are the risks and, and not take a point of view. That If that's who you are, that's how you should say it. That's not who I am. Uh, I like being someone who is in the forefront of the decision shoulder to shoulder with the business folks and say, here's the decision we should make. And I'm informed by a set of legal skills, but I'm not, I'm not the lawyer. I'm, I know I have to act like a lawyer for, for technical reasons, but when it comes to decision-making, it's uh, for me, it's, it's really about what's the best decision for the company. Uh, and do you have the ability to influence uh, in different areas? I just, yep. Well, um, just to complete the the uh, path here, I think the company you joined then got taken over. You became the acquirer's general counsel. I did. Uh, so that's your current role. So you've been in that role for how long now? So it, a little over four years. When I was at CR Bard, we were approached by Beckton Dickinson. This is all in, in public in the proxy, but uh, we were approached. And uh, you know, initially, we were not looking to be uh, bought. We were very confident in our strategic plan. We were very confident in our long-run runway. But at some point, the price gets to a point where you know, the, uh, the board has to give serious consideration uh, to the, uh, the value that's being presented to shareholders. And ultimately that process yielded a sale to Beckton Dickinson. Beckton Dickinson, 120 plus year company at the time, based in New Jersey. CR Bard was a 108 year old company based in New Jersey, 34 hmm. miles apart, right? Uh, so there was a bit of uh, good fortune and providence playing a role. Like you get acquired and you get acquired by a company in the same state within a driving distance. It's pretty fortunate. So as we were going through the process, uh, they started talking to me about the general counsel position. The general counsel there had been there for a long time. Uh, unfortunately, he, he fell ill. And so the discussions with me accelerated. And uh, I was thinking about what do, what do I do next? Do I take some time off, spend time with my family? Hmm. And I said, you know, I'm still kind of excited about this. And I was so passionate about the combination of the two companies that I wanted to be, I wanted to be part of its success. And I thought that my perspective as being an executive of the acquired company could help, help bring the two companies together. So I was co-chairman of the integration management office where, which, where we were working on combining the two companies across multiple domains. So that, that process was going on for many months before the merger actually occurred. So I became general counsel upon closing of the merger at the end of 2017 uh, and took some time integrating the two departments together. So roughly 200, 250 personnel, we had to combine systems, we had to combine cultures. The, the companies were very similar in value systems, very different in culture. Uh, both very nice cultures, but uh, one was more uh, direct, the, less, uh, the other was more consensus building and, and we combined the best of the best, it took some time. And then two years later, uh, I was given responsibility for the uh, public affairs portfolio uh, and then also the global regulatory uh, affairs portfolio. So that expanded by another six, 700 people. And then uh, just this past September, 
I was given responsibility for the corporate development portfolio uh, on a, uh, from a business perspective. So now I have that as well. So global M&A, global corporate development. All right. So you're, you're one busy guy. <laughs> yeah. I, although I'm not any busier, I've just uh, spread out a bit more. Uh, what's good about the phasing is that the law department requires less attention because I've hired some really good people. Uh, it's all about the team. So I'm, yep. You know, my effectiveness is really a, a directly correlates to the effect, uh, uh, the the quality of the team uh, that I have underneath me, and uh, it's an amazing team. Some of whom have worked with me uh, from three jobs ago uh, that have worked with me for the last sixteen years. They were with me at Catalan, they came with me at Bard, and they've uh, come with me at PD. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm pretty busy. So Sam, yeah. So let me ask you about. I want to ask you to reflect on your uh, various uh, kind of GC roles and C-suite executive roles you've had, uh, including the the one you currently uh, sit in. Um, Obviously, when you know, for all of us, uh, the jobs that we do, some things about them come naturally Mm -hmm. and and suit our temperaments and our skill sets. And some things are actually really hard because there may be things about ourselves that don't really fit the job that way. We have to overcome them. So tell me about the things that come naturally to you in your role, but the, but more importantly, the things that are maybe more difficult and maybe more struggles you have to, you've had to work at to get better at. Sure. Uh, so let's go with the things that have come naturally. So two things. I'm very much a uh, social kind of tactile leader. I like the human contact. Uh, I have different ways of engaging with people. I'm a big believer in picking up the phone and calling folks. I write hand, uh, you know, handwritten thank you notes. Uh, sometimes I'll write handwritten thank you notes to people who say, good job. I think the personal connection to the teams is really important uh, for me. Uh, and it makes me at least, uh, you know, I like to be uh, a leader that is very empathetic and understands uh, his team. So I, I'd like to know what's going on in people's lives to the extent that they share. I'd like to understand about their families because you, you become much more understanding. And if you're really trying to get the best out of a team, you have to have that level of awareness, that personal connection uh, to inspire them, make them feel. And that, I learned that in the military. If you, if you ensure that your people know that you care about them, they'll do a lot for you and for the organization. So I try to do that uh, through those personal co- uh, connections. That doesn't mean that I'm easy. I think I've been called very challenging, very demanding. I have an incredibly high set of expectations. And if those aren't met, uh, I think I become not as easy to work with, right? But I'm pretty easy to work with if, if, the, stand, <laughs> if, the, if the standard of excellence is, is maintained. And I think the team actually uh, gets frustrated at times because the bar keeps moving, right? I so said, you get 1% better every day, right? You're better every month, better every year, which means that, you know, what was excellent this year is just good next year. Right. So that's kind of the mantra that I have. So, but in order to carry that out, you really got to care a lot about your teams and they got to feel like they they can trust you. So that's one thing that's the the social aspect. Yeah. The leadership becomes very easy. Uh, I think the other piece that comes easy to me is decision making. Like I'm very comfortable with risk, very comfortable, very comfortable with uh, uh, dealing in ambiguity and, uh, and very comfortable tying a lot of complex issues, facts, data to the, the most salient decision. That, and I don't know if that's from the military or from my upbringing or maybe a combination of the two. That has served me uh, very well. Uh, so I would say those are the two things that, that come easy. I yeah, think that, the, other, the other side of the coin. So the other side of the coin, I would say there are two areas that I've been working on, and it's an issue of self-awareness, right? So I think that... Uh, uh, the better you are as a leader is directly correlated to how self-aware you are as a leader. So one of the issues that I'm very uh, self-aware of is I have an extreme patience for uh, certain things. And what I would say is uh, a unacceptable impatience for many things that I probably should be more patient on. So I'll give, I'll give you an uh, example. I, uh, I expect, and I've learned that, I've ex- I expect people uh, to be highly responsive. I expect people to uh, be faster at their jobs than they are. I expect people to learn faster than they should. And I that was certainly 
where I was 15 years ago when I started, 14 years ago when I started as a GC. There's elements of that now uh, that I work on because what I've learned as I've gone older and grayer is that everybody learns differently. Uh, everybody has, and so it's caused me to actually uh, adapt my way of approaching individuals because uh, it's my responsibility to uh, meet them where they uh, where they are and help them. And this is less about the legal skills and more about leadership and behavioral skills. Uh, mm. And so that's that's one area. The other is uh, <laughs> working on acknowledging people more. Uh, I, I think my orientation is success and excellence is just doing your job. And so I, I have learned over the last few years uh, through some, some good feedback that I've received and actually, quite frankly, great coaching for my own team. You know, the people that, uh, that I've had the privilege of, of uh, working with, they provide me feedback and say, hey, it'd be good if we just stopped and celebrated uh, yeah. a little bit more. And so I think uh, that's something that I've been uh, working on for a while, and I continue to work on that. Well, you know, Sam, the second point you made, it, it rings so true to me because one of the feedbacks I got, which I took to heart, but I kept relapsing on was, you know, it's, we, we, we know when we haven't done a great job. But, but let us know when we have. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. Make it a two-way street. It, it, it is, it, it's a, yeah, I, I, I feel that. And I'll tell you, it requires daily discipline. Yep, yep. Let me ask you this. Um, you know, you've had successful careers both in the military and in, in, in corporate uh, and mm -hmm. law and business. Um, tell me where you think the military leadership training and philosophy works uh, in your setting today mm -hmm. and where maybe it doesn't work so well. In other words, well, you've had to adapt it, right? And sure. Not everything transplants directly. Yeah, I, I think uh, there's there's many more uh, uh, elements that are transferable than not. Right. Uh, I think the what's not transferable is some of the facts and circumstances, right? But the leadership themes, when you look at the leadership principles uh, or the leadership expectations of leaders in the military and you bring them over to uh, some of the corporate leadership tenants that they're almost directly on point. So one of the biggest things I learned in the Middle East was 100% accountability, personal accountability, right? And that, I think, when, when you look at some of the, the value statements that a lot of corporations have and like when in cultural transformations, I don't have the data on this, but I would bet you if you look that most of them would have the word accountability uh, in it, improving accountability. And sure. uh, I think that's first and foremost, you learn how to be an accountable leader, accountable for your actions, accountable for your team. Uh, so that's that's number one. I think the the, the one area that dis, is highly distinguishable from uh, legal and corporate training that I got in the military is decision making. Decision making under stress, decision making with limited information, uh, and decision making uh, in a high stakes uh, when the stakes are really high. And so that I've been able to pull and apply directly to my day-to-day -day job. I probably use that skill set informed by you know, legal analysis, the regulatory sure. analysis, the business analysis, but I use that skill set more uh, so than any other skill set on a, on a daily basis. I mean, clearly uh, the command and control structure of the military does not exist in, corporate in a corporate environment. So you have to, uh, sometimes leadership is a bit more difficult in a corporate environment because you have to lead by influence. Uh, but to me, that makes it more challenging, right? If, you, if you're focused on an objective and you have a good uh, persuasive way of getting people to that same objective, it's, uh, it's a lot more rewarding to lead people there that aren't you know, in your area of responsibility through influence. Sam, I'm going to turn to what I've called the uh, uh, quick hit uh, yeah. section of this. I'm going to I'm going to give you a couple of statements. I want you to say whether you agree or disagree or yes or no. I mean, these are oversimplifications, but it's really intended to elicit a, a brief discussion. OK. Um, when choosing a GC, I'd rather choose a great leader with decent skills over a great lawyer with average leadership skills. True. So you would say that's correct. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, law. So choose between these two statements. Law is no different from any other business activity and can be managed just like a business function versus 
The legal function is not like other business activities, and lawyers do different things and must be managed differently. Both true. Well, what is it? What is that? You, you can't have it both ways. I know, but it, I would err on the side of the first statement. So you can run it like a business, but a, but also uh, acknowledge that certain elements of the second statement are true. But I yep. gravitate towards number one. All right, and finally, so you you had mentioned, and I think this is an important part of uh, the GC's uh, job is relationship with the CEO. Yes, and how important the CEO is, and having a great CEO is a, is a great pleasure to work with. So here's the question. Um, Would you agree with this statement that it's important for a GC to be effective and successful, to be friendly with the CEO and other other C-suite executives, but it's not a good idea to become best friends? Um, Because because a a degree of distance is required to perform that job. uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think that when you're this is a good conversation. I think being friendly is really important. I think whether you become, you know, I don't know at this stage in life, like who's a best friend or not. Like that's kind of a, you know, it's like, it's, it's a description that I don't use. I think friendly yep. and it, it's just, I think it's, it's important because you need to have that trusted relationship. And I think that uh, really good CEOs uh, know uh the lines uh, of of friendship. I look. I've I've got friends. I've been friends with people uh, that I've worked for, but you know the line and their responsibilities, right? And uh, I think general counsels are the same way. At the end of the day, if everything is working well, you're all aligned, right? Mm-hmm. And in those rare circumstances, uh, you know the the choice would be very clear because you have a professional responsibility. Uh, but if you're working at the right company with the right purpose, with the right people, you don't have those instances. I think having, I'm a big believer that relationships matter, right? And relationships get you through the really, really uh, tough issues. So I would default to an effective general counsel has to have good, strong relationships, uh, trusted relationships with the executive suite, including the CEO. Well, Sam, is your next career a CEO or a, a business person? Do you think that's what you would love to do as another job at some point down the road? I love what I'm doing right now. I, I you know, I, I think the fact that I uh, have grown up and understand business and have that orientation makes me a more effective general counsel. I love the law uh, and I love uh, working with and uh uh, with law firms on tricky issues. And quite frankly, uh, a general counsel at a company where the general counsel is viewed more than just a lawyer, which is where I am, you have the ability to influence things that you typically wouldn't. You have the ability to influence culture. You have the ability to influence uh, markets that you're going to get into. You have the ability to inf- drive, help drive strategy. Uh, and you're at the table at some of the critical decisions. So no, I uh, at this stage of my career, I'm 54. Uh, you know, there's, it's not time for a reset. It's time to actually take all those experiences that I've gained, uh, you know, working for 25 plus years, 15 as a general counsel and continue to bring them to bear in a company uh, and then also really help others. So uh, yeah, I'm happy being a GC and that's, that's what I love doing and just want to keep doing it and doing it better. Well, Sam, this has been a great conversation. So thank you for sharing your your insights, your experiences. Uh, I've learned a lot and hopefully our listeners have as well. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you very much. It was a great great conversation. Uh, Not so tough questions, but it certainly caused me to think of it. So thank you. 